I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. Paul declared in his thesis to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul is excited about the gospel as the source of salvation. Salvation implies the need to be saved. So there's a great problem that must be solved. And before Paul can offer the solution of the gospel, that is, how is it that God's righteousness is revealed, he's first got to establish the dilemma. What do we need to be saved from? And the answer to that is that we need salvation from our own sin. Though we we could equally say that we need salvation from the wrath of God, which is going to come against us because of our own sin. So do I really fear the wrath of God? Or am I basically good and God is loving and and I'm safe? So Paul recognizes that he's got to disarm us of the illusion of our own goodness and safety before a holy God. So he's taken us to court. He started his prosecution with the pagan person, but then he included the moral person who stands in judgment over the pagan, yet does not live up to his own moral standards, much less God's moral standard. So the moral person might adjust their defense and say, I stand not only on my moral behavior, but on my moral and religious behavior. My religion makes up for any moral failure. Being a skilled prosecutor, Paul addresses the religious defense in our present passage, so in Romans 2, 17-29. But before we get to the text, let's think a little more about the position of the religious person. So we can imagine that the defendant in this section of Romans is being asked to answer the following question. If you were to get hit by a bus in the next five minutes and go to the gates of heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you come in and enjoy eternal life with me? What would your answer be? It's a thoughtful question. In fact, you might want to pause right here and think what your answer would be to that question. If God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? When I ask this question, I get three different types of answers from religious people. First, some religious people have the expectation that they're going to get in simply because they're a member of a certain people group or denomination. They're not really sure how to answer the question. They haven't thought it through theologically, but they just say something like, well, I'm Orthodox, or my whole country is Orthodox. Uh, I might not be the best person, but I do believe I'm going to go to heaven. Or my family's fourth-generation Methodist. I grew up in the church. I think I'm okay. The second group of people has thought it through a little more, and they they sense that there's got to be more than just belonging to church or an ethnic group. You've got to at least be a little religious. And so one might say, you know, I'm not a nun or a priest or anything, but I was baptized and I was confirmed, and I go to church and confession on important occasions. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to go to heaven. Um, Who can really be sure? But I think I'm in. Another might say, I read my Bible. I pray every morning. I only listen to Christian radio. I go to church twice a week. You know, that's the religious answer. I will get in because I do religious things. A third person senses that there must be even more to it than religious ritual. You, you must actually try to be a good person, give to the poor, take marriage seriously, be honest in your business practice, act kindly, promote justice. So often the response I get is, is more of a mixture between options number two and three, a mix between religious and moral behavior. So somebody will say, you know, I've never killed anybody. Which, by the way, is a really low bar. I've never killed anybody. You know, good for you. You've never killed anybody. Um, but then the lads, you know, I, I try to do it as right. I try to be honest. I go to church. I believe in Jesus. I pray. 
And so there's some mix of those those three options is what you usually get from a modern religious person. Paul is not addressing a modern religious person. Paul is addressing a first century Jew. So to interpret Paul correctly, we need to think what's the what is the Jewish perspective that he was addressing. And we should probably say perspectives. I imagine there were there were various options moving from a, a less religious Jew to a more religious Jew or from a Pharisee to a Sadducee to a scribe. You know, there's certainly also some mix of perspective in first century Judaism, just like we get from your average religious person today. There's Everybody's not going to say exactly the same thing. We do know that the question of who enters the kingdom of God was a common question under discussion for religious Jews in the first century. So when Jesus raised the issue with Nicodemus in John 3, 3, regarding who gets into the kingdom of heaven, he raised an issue of common debate. So Nic- And Nicodemus already knew the answer to the question. The accepted answer of who gets into the kingdom of heaven was the righteous man. Everybody pretty much knew that. The real debate was over the clarifying question, okay, who's righteous? Jesus, however, threw Nicodemus for a loop when he skipped over the definition of the righteous man and instead proclaimed that the one who is born again, that's the one who gets into the kingdom of heaven. And that was a pretty strange answer to the common Jewish question. So Nicodemus got flustered. He was unable to make sense of what Jesus was talking about, and he pretty quickly just stops talking in the conversation. So to understand the common Jewish perspective, it's helpful to think to imagine three concentric circles at this part. So we have three circles, one inside the other. And the biggest circle, or the outer circle, would define the righteous man as the Jew. If you are a Jew, you're in. If you're a Gentile, you're out. So, and this fits for the less religious, less moral person, kind of your average working Jew. You don't have to overthink your relationship with God. If you're born a Jew, you're part of the people of God. That makes you one of the righteous ones. So you're, you're basically okay. Many Jews in Paul's day would reject that idea. They would say there's, there's got to be more to it than that. Not only do you have to be Jewish, you also have to obey the ritual law. You have to watch what you eat, keep the Sabbath, circumcise your baby boys. And as long as you keep the main markers of the law, then you're in. You're considered righteous. So this is the middle of our three circles. It's the religious circle. The Pharisees were a good example of a third Jewish perspective, which reasoned, yes, the first two circles are necessary. You need to be a Jew and you need to keep the covenant rituals, but you need to go further than that. You need to live a moral life. You need to follow the Ten Commandments. In fact, you need to follow the whole of the law. So the righteous man is the one who keeps not only ritual law, but also moral law. How righteous do you have to be in your behavior? In John's account, Jesus did not use the language of righteousness with Nicodemus, but Jesus did use righteousness language throughout the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through So notably in Matthew 5-6, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So Jesus is affirming that this is a good question to be asking. If the righteous are the ones who enter the kingdom of God, and you are seeking to enter the kingdom of God, then you should hunger and thirst after righteousness. But Jesus holds up a really high standard for righteousness. So in Matthew 5.20, he says, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have shocked Nicodemus. You know, your righteousness must be more moral than the most moral among you. So the three circles that gave us the first century Jewish perspective line up pretty well with the modern religious perspective. 
So the less demanding outer circle simply says, you need to belong to the right group. As long as you're Roman Catholic or Orthodox or Moravian or Methodist or Baptist or Brethren, if you're in the right church, you're good. That's the main thing. The next circle asserts, no, there's got to be more to it than that. You need to take being a Methodist seriously. You need to attend church regularly. Or as a Catholic, you need to take Mass more than just twice a year. Or as a Baptist, you need adult baptism and you need to read your Bible daily. This middle circle says that doing the right religious rituals or habits or disciplines puts you in right standing with God. The final circle goes further. No, being a member of the right group's not enough and doing the right religious activities is not enough. You actually have to live a moral life. So Paul forced us into that central third circle in Romans 2, 1 to 16. If you're going to stand in judgment of immoral, secular people, then you must meet the moral requirements yourself. Paul concluded, however, that no one meets the moral standard required by God. On the day of judgment, our thoughts will alternately defend and accuse us. So if we take the moral defense in the court of God, we're going to lose our case. We are guaranteed a guilty verdict. The natural move is to fall back on the second middle circle, the religious circle. We all know we're not basically good, you know, if we are able to rationally think about it. We're sometimes good. We're often selfish, rude, judgmental, prideful, uncaring, lustful, greedy. You know, but when we own up to our own moral failures, religious ritual provides a first line of defense. If the moral defense fails, what about the religious defense? I may not be perfect, but surely God takes into account my religious actions. That's the question before Paul. Will my religious ritual and disciplines cover over my moral failure? And Paul's going to say no. So Romans two seventeen to 29 has two main sections. In 17 to 23, Paul sets up the charge telling the religious Jew that their knowledge of God's will has led to a false sense of security undermined by their behavior. Then in 24 to 29, Paul brings home his charge that religious behavior and ritual do not make up for moral failure. Paul goes after the religious person's security with three lists that come in quick succession. So the first two lists are positive and then the third list is not. So listening, we get the feel of a prosecuting attorney on the attack. I'm going to read all three, and then I'll come back to each one in return. So Romans 2, 17 to 23. But if you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, and you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law and the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? Okay, up to the first list in verses 17 and 18. The law here refers to Torah. It's the Pentateuch, or first five books of the Bible, and this is the set of books that Moses left with the second generation of Israelites who'd come out of Egypt. And it's it's more than a list of do's and don'ts. It includes history, poetry, theological explanation, and it answers for the early Jewish nation three essential questions. Who is our God? Who am I? And what's our mission? This first list identifies truths about the believer in God who has received the special revelation of the Torah. So through God's covenant, they have a special identity of Jew. They know who they are. They know the good and bad of their history. They're, they're also able to rely on the law. They have a sense of purpose from the law, directing them how to live individually, how to live in community, 
how to order their religious life, and even how to order their civil society. They can also boast in God, which again goes to identity. They are connected to someone much greater than they are alone on their own. And they know his will. Their God is not a fickle, chaotic, pagan God whose will is indiscernible. In the law, God has made his will known, and they know what he expects. They can approve the things that are essential for relationship with God and for life and family and in community. The special revelation of God in his word enables the Jews to see things as God sees them. They have access to an accurate worldview. So they are wonderfully blessed in their religion. In our New Covenant age, Paul's argument can be updated. You know, If we simply insert Christian for Jew and Bible for law, it still works. But if you bear the name Christian and rely on the Bible and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the Bible. The next list of five items is in verses 19 to 20. And it describes a religious person's advantage over the non-religious person. Again, it's, it's, not an, it's not meant to be a negative list. All these things should be true of someone who truly knows God and has access to his word. Because they have accepted God's revelation, the Jews had a superior worldview. The pagan nations surrounding Israel lacked insight into God's character, into the value of human beings, into accurate definition of, of what is morally good and what is evil into the orderliness of the created world, the nature of history and time, the reality of the soul, and of the afterlife. So the Christian has the same advantage in the Bible, even a greater advantage, since we now have the revelation concerning Jesus Christ. The world makes more sense when Jesus is at the center of our worldview and when we trust the Bible to fill out the details. So, of course, we might not understand the Bible accurately. We have to pursue accurate understanding, and that pursuit leads to a more accurate understanding of how life works, spiritually, morally, relationally. Paul would not have us apologize for the blessing of the Bible, and he would certainly approve of the responsibility believers have in communicating biblical truth to a world that is without hope and separated from God. At the same time, Paul's quite aware of the sinful heart's tendency to turn religious knowledge into a sense of superiority and even worse, into hypocritical superiority. So after these two positive lists, Paul's charge comes in the next list. It's in Romans 21 to 23. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? The problem is not in the possession of religious knowledge. The problem is thinking that the possession of religious knowledge is somehow enough to earn God's approval when we know our behavior does not match up to our teaching. It's not clear why Paul chose to use these precise examples of stealing or adultery or robbing temples. Stealing and adultery both bring to mind the the whole of the Ten Commandments. We should probably feel free to add in the whole list here, uh, the two examples kind of implying the whole. We should also keep in mind that the Ten Commandments provide a moral continuum. Jews understood the Ten Commandments as a general summary of the whole law of Moses. Every specific law was somehow captured by one of the ten. And if that is true, then we we need to understand murder and stealing and adultery more broadly. So Jesus taught that. He taught a more broad view of the Ten Commandments in Matthew chapter 5. He thought that if we call somebody a fool, then we're actually committing murder. That's 522. Murder is the supreme negative behavior forbidden by the commandment. To murder someone is to disdain their life to such a degree that you're willing to take their life in order to fulfill your own agenda. So if the actual taking of life is at the far end of the continuum of murder, then hateful thoughts, hateful words, and deeds lead on a continuum up to that final act 
of murder, to hate a person in my heart, to degrade a person with my words, to spit on, to hit, to scratch another person, those are the sins of murder. For the case of adultery, Jesus says that lust for a woman that is not your wife is the sin of adultery. It starts in the mind, and then it moves outward in words and in actions, and it's, it's only finally fully consummated in sexual intercourse. The example here of stealing is interesting because it's the one example in the Ten Commandments where the outward action and the internal formulation of the sin are both included. The outward action is forbidden in the commandment, do not steal, but the inner sin is forbidden in the commandment, do not covet. So coveting starts in the mind and moves towards the outward action of stealing. So even though Paul uses these more concrete behaviors of stealing and adultery, his argument includes coveting and lusting. Who are you to teach others to be faithful in marriage when you don't resist the lusting of your own mind or when you're watching internet pornography? Who are you to teach others not to steal when your heart is full of jealousy for what you do not have? Now, on, on the other example, I'm, I have to admit, I'm not sure what Paul is talking about when he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? One thought would be that he's addressing those who speak out against idol worship, but they don't pay their own tithe for the upkeep of the temple. The problem with that interpretation is that Paul uses the plural here for temple, and the Jews only had one temple. Another possibility is that Jews in Rome received some kind of benefit from pagan temples. So with their mouths, they might speak of the evil of temples, but yet with their hands receive a share and a benefit offered by those pagan temples. Or maybe somebody really robbed temples. Whichever it is, Paul had in mind some hypocritical practice that the Romans would have understood. And Paul's conclusion comes out quite clear. Confident in their religious knowledge, Paul charges religious Jews with bringing dishonor on God by not living up to their own teaching. And this this brings us into the second section of the text. After we have these three lists, in the rest of the passage, Paul brings in the central Jewish ritual of circumcision. So to sum up Paul's indictment, he declares that religious knowledge and ritual do not make up for failure in moral practice. And Paul's going to make his point here with three consecutive four statements. The word for may or may not occur in your translation. It's there in the original Greek that Paul used. It's at the beginning of verse 24, 25, and 28, and you'll hear it in the English translation I'm using. So let's take these four statements one by one. The first is in verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. This verse 24 is supporting the statement made in verse 23. It's the basic indictment. So in verse 23, Paul asks the rhetorical question, You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? We could follow that up with the question, how does our breaking the law dishonor God? And we get Paul's support for his statement in verse 24. Your breaking the law dishonors God because the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When religious people preach one thing and then behave contrary to their teaching, non-religious people take note. And not only does the inconsistency cause them to think badly of religious people, it causes them to think badly of the God of those religious people. So often religious people are guilty of communicating superiority over non-religious people. You know, we know the truth, we're better. You know, that comes out a lot. At other times, religious people actually communicate humbly, but that doesn't change the fact that their, their claim to special knowledge can still be heard or interpreted as a claim to superiority. Either way, non-religious or less religious people are aware that Christians claim to have special sight into what is morally right and what is morally wrong. They know we preach, do not commit adultery. So what do you think when a famous minister is called in adultery? They know we preach the Bible is true, and they know the Bible says, turn the other cheek to your aggressor. 
Do not take your Christian brother to court. Care for the widow and orphan. Love your neighbor. Love the foreigner. So when we fail in these areas, we look like hypocrites, and our God looks judgmental, abusive, small-minded. A claim to religious knowledge combined with failure in living out the moral claims of that religious knowledge smells awful. One pastor calls it theological body odor. Good truth, bad practice. It's very evident to the non-religious person, and it brings dishonor on the God that the religious person claims to follow. The next four introduces the point made in verses 25 to 27. Paul refers to circumcision at this point. Circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was instituted in Genesis 17, pretty way back at the beginning. The Mosaic covenant, building on the Abrahamic covenant, continued the requirement of circumcision. Circumcision provided a physical marker for Jewish boys and men that distinguished them or set them apart from non-Jews. And Paul has said in verse 24 that the behavior of Jewish people has caused non-Jewish people to talk bad about the God of the Jews. We might again ask Paul, how so? How is it that inability to live up to our teaching causes non-Jews to blaspheme God? Well, to summarize Paul's point in 25-27, he's going to say, your failure to live out your own teaching causes non-Jews to speak badly about God because you've set yourself apart by your religious ritual, but not by your behavior, such that you act like you are not the people of God, while non-Jews who are not set apart by religious ceremony of circumcision at times fulfill the teaching of God. So let's read that in 25 to 27. For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his own circumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Paul's refused to accept the religious defense. See, it's not enough to be circumcised. You actually have to obey the law. You know, he's maneuvered us back into the moral argument. The religious defense wants to argue that possession of religious knowledge, the law, and performance of religious ritual somehow make up for our moral failures. Paul says, no, they don't. Those who have not been ritually circumcised sometimes do better at fulfilling the law than you who have been circumcised. And though the Jewish person feels like they're a guide to the blind, up in verse 19, here it is the non-Jewish person who judges the Jewish person. The teacher is not the one who knows the right thing to do. The teacher is the one who does the right thing. The Jews and Christians often make the same mistake in understanding the religious rituals of the Bible. You know, we have circumcision, food laws, and various commands to sacrifice in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the two big rituals are baptism and the Lord's Supper, you know, taking the bread and wine. The mistake is to believe that somehow these rituals cover over our moral sin. There's a popular perspective or way to look at it that God judges based on a scale system. You know, all our sins are put on one side of the scale. All our good works are on the other side of the scale. And whichever way the scale tips decides the judgment. The moral indictment from the beginning of the chapter ensures us that the scale will always tilt towards the guilty. Our sin always outweighs our good works because God takes into account thoughts and words as well as actions. And this is the point in the argument where the religious person takes a step back from trying to make their defense purely on moral behavior. They want to add their religious knowledge, rituals, and habits onto the good side of the scale. You know, I was baptized. I went to church. I took communion weekly. I prayed daily. I gave a full 10% of my income. That's God account for something. You know, if I put all that on the good side of the scale, won't it tip it over in my favor? 
There are at least three problems with this line of thinking. First, even if religious ritual did tip the scales, are you truly doing those things out of love for God, or are you simply trying to buy your way out of sin? And if you're just trying to buy your way out of sin, if your heart is not pure in your ritual, then is your action pleasing to God? Does it really go on the good side if you're only doing it to try to get out of sin? As David prays in the confession of his sin in Psalm fifty-three, sixteen, God, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David understood that the religious ritual doesn't even have value if the heart's not right. Okay, a second problem, God doesn't judge us on the scale system. The whole image is wrong. No judge does that. You might be given some credit for good behavior before a court of law. You know, being a decent guy is not going to get you off for murder, though. You'll be judged before the court based on your moral thoughts, words, and deeds one at a time. Each sin you commit is a grievous offense against the moral nature of God. And Paul's going to say in Romans 6.23 that the wages of each sin is death. So the penalty for one sin is death, or that is eternal separation from God. Holy God cannot be in relationship with sinful man. He must judge sin. If he put on one side of the scale all the truly good and selfish loving acts you've done in your life and put on the other side of the scale one sin, the verdict of a just judge must still be guilty for that one sin. Adding all your religious knowledge and action on the good side doesn't do anything to change the fact that you have to pay the penalty for the sin that you did commit. The third problem is that the Bible doesn't teach that the penalty of sin is good community service. If the offense were lighter, then perhaps the penalty would be, you know, say three prayers and go to church for a month. Though I must say it's truly a shame if you feel like talking to God in prayer and going to church are penalties. But anyhow, the offense is not light. The offense tarnishes the image of God in which you were made. The offense disqualifies you from a relationship with the Holy God. The result is eternal separation from God. The penalty for sin is death. You don't pay that through your good religious behavior. And we're, we're going to come back to this understanding of judgment when we get into the verdict at the end of chapter 3. For now, it's enough to know that Paul does not accept religious ritual as efficacious for removing the guilt of sin. We can ask how so one more time. We're getting to our third four. How is it that the ritual of circumcision does not protect us from our moral failures? Paul's answer has to do with the function of circumcision. Circumcision was not intended as a ritual act that somehow conferred grace on a Jewish boy. If that were the case, we'd definitely have to fear for the salvation of all the Jewish girls. Uh, Circumcision was a symbolic ritual pointing towards an internal reality. Circumcision symbolized both a curse and a blessing. Through the ritual of circumcision, parents really declared a curse on their own seed or their descendants if they were to turn away from God. They were basically declaring, if we do not walk faithfully with God, if we turn away to worship other gods, then let our descendants be cut off from the people of Israel. You can check that out in Genesis 17, 9 through 14. The symbolic idea is an idea of cutting off, being removed. But circumcision also communicated a blessing, symbolizing the need for God to work internally in the heart of a person so that that person might be able to love him and to serve him. And that was called circumcision of the heart. It was a cutting away of the old flesh or sin nature. And Moses promised that in Deuteronomy 36, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Okay, we've got that set up. So now let's read the text. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Trusting in circumcision to make one acceptable before God is to miss the whole point of the ritual. Circumcision was meant to call Jews to commit to faithful service with God that comes out of a heart for God. Circumcision was not intended to make up for moral failure. So Paul's example here is the Jew. The same argument applies to all cultural Christians. We could easily insert baptism for circumcision. Baptism carries into the New Covenant very similar symbolism as circumcision. There's both a curse and a blessing. Recognizing the need to die for sin, baptism takes the Christian under the water, symbolizing death. That's the curse. But recognizing the need for God to do an internal work in the heart, baptism takes the Christian up out of the water, symbolizing new life. And that's the blessing. Baptism doesn't make up for moral failure. Baptism points to an internal reality. The religious Christian who trusts in their knowledge of the Bible and their various religious practices fails in their defense before God just as much as the Jewish person. Who is righteous before God? Okay, let's go back to our three circles. The outer circle says it's enough to simply be a member. Be a Jew, be a Christian in the right denomination. That's it. You're in. But certainly there has to be more than that. You have to be religious, to be baptized, to take the Lord's Supper, to go to church. But then others say that's not enough. You have to go further. You have to keep the moral law. The righteous one is both religious and moral. And Paul agrees. But he also agrees with Jesus. Your morality must exceed the morality of the most moral among you. You must be without guilt. How that can be, Paul hasn't told us yet. We've got to wait a bit more. He hints in verse 29 that he's going to talk about something new, a work of the Holy Spirit in our heart, but he's not ready to go into that yet. His last words here in this text challenge us to a right perspective. Back in verse 17, the religious person is described as boasting in God. You know, he's secure in his own knowledge about God. A dangerous reality in the sinful human heart when mixed with religion, even good religion, is that we become self-satisfied with our own religious knowledge and practice. The human heart is terribly legalistic. We feel as though we know God and are good with God because of our status as a member of the right group and because of the paltry commitments we make in the name of religion. The legalistic human heart also craves praise from others. Look at what I've done. Recognize that I'm worthy. Praise from man strengthens this sense of security in our own righteousness. So it's wonderful to gather around us, you know, people of like mind and people who approve of our religious ritual because they convince us that we're okay. But the person who truly seeks God and truly loves God is not proud in his own knowledge and behavior, and he does not depend on the praise of other people. As Paul writes in our last verse here, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. His praise is not from men, but from God. You see, it's not so important what you think about God as what God thinks about you. It's crucial to hear God say, justified. You are innocent before my court. Enter into relationship with me. False security in religious works hinders the pursuit of an open, honest relationship with God. And as David has said, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. It starts with this, this humility. You know, before we find the answer to the question, what makes me right in the eyes of God, we must desire the answer. 
when we recognize that we are indeed poor in spirit, when we mourn over our sin, when we become meek before God, then we begin to hunger and thirst after his righteousness. Then we're on the right path. We're no longer seeking man's answer to how to be right before God. We've begun to seek God's answer. We see that we have no answer in and of ourselves. We seek God's answer. And those who seek will find. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com. Observe the word.